Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Hey, and would you take your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1. I'm finishing up a sermon series today. I started a few weeks ago entitled Real Religion, Testing Trials and Temptations. And so we've been going through the first chapter of the book of James. And here's always been the problem is we, there's a disconnect between Sunday and Monday. Sunday, what we'll kind of call the classroom of theology, and Monday is the practicum of theology. And sometimes there's a little disconnect between that, not, not because we're doing anything wrong. It's just one thing to hear about testing trials and temptations in the classroom. It's another thing to experience them on Monday morning. And so what James is trying to do, in a very practical book, James is trying to, throughout the whole book, connect those two together. And so uh, James chapter 1 is about connecting those together, the Sunday uh, uh, classroom and the, and the Monday practicum. And so we've looked at trials, we've looked at temptations, we've looked at people watching you, we look at, we've looked at implementing the Word of God. And so today, I want to preach on this subject from James chapter 1, religion, the real thing. I called it real religion because the final two verses of the book of James use that phrase. We're, we're going to talk about it in a moment. But he says, pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this. And so that word pure religion there is, is where we get the title real religion. That's what he's talking about is real religion. So let's talk about the real thing for a moment today. If I were to say the date, April 23rd, 1985, listen, the date, don't, don't Google it now, but April 23rd, 1985 is a day that will live in infamy. And before any of you try to figure out what I'm talking about, when I point it out, you'll remember it was a day of utter tragedy, especially in the South. And I'm going to show you a picture, and if, if you're queasy, I apologize for this, but April 23rd, 1985 was the day this happened. New Coke was introduced into America. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that date or not. Some of you weren't alive then, but let, let me tell you a little bit of the backstory, and I'll get to where I want to go. After World War II, the Coca-Cola Wars, Coke was the leading cola manufacturer by far. They owned 60% of the market share. But you fast forward to 1985, and Coke was down to 24% of the market share. One reason they were at 24% was uh, because uh, uh, Pepsi had come on so strong. As a matter of fact, the only reason Coke is at 24% is they had more vending machines than Pepsi did, and they owned pouring rights in stadiums and, and restaurants and places like that that actually purchased the right to be a Coke-only uh, uh, venue. And so that's why they own 24%. But Pepsi had been coming along strong. Pepsi had really been making up ground and they were doing it mainly because of one reason. Does anybody remember the Pepsi challenge? Pepsi would blindfold people and, and put three uh, uh, glasses of cola in front of them. And they'd say, you pick out the one that tastes best. And the vast majority of people, no matter what they like, had been choosing Pepsi. And so people had been moving over to the Pepsi. And so Coke was down to just a quarter of the market share. And so 1985, the CEO of Coke, Roberto Gozetta, decided to commission all the senior executives who were involved to commission a project to introduce a new formula for Coke. They called it Project Kansas. 
Now, there's all kinds of rumors about the Coke formula. People say nobody really knows the formula, that they have different purchasers that order things, but that the actual uh, mixture for Coke is fed into computers so nobody knows what it is and it's hidden in a vault somewhere. And so for them to tamper with the formula of Coke was a really, really big deal. But they did, and they, they did some taste tests with it, and they discovered that, by and large, people liked it. It was a sweeter uh, version of Coke than what Coke had been, and so the, overwhelmingly, people were saying they would like it. About a uh, uh, majority of people saying it's okay. Only about 10 to 12% of the people were getting angry about it, angry. And so April 23rd, 1985, they launched New Coke. They introduced it in New York and Washington, D.C., and the overwhelming majority of people said they would buy it again. As a matter of fact, sales figures for, new, for Coca-Cola products was up 8% on, in April over the previous April. And people in New York and, and people in, in Washington, D.C., they were loving it. It was introduced at McDonald's on the same day, and McDonald's was pouring new Coke on April 23rd, 1985, and most people liked it. Three-quarters of the people said that they would definitely buy new Coke again. Three-quarters of the people who lived in New York and Washington, D.C., there's just one problem. They had yet to introduce it into the South. <laughs> and so they introduced it into the Southeast. And the company headquarters in Atlanta started receiving letters and phone calls, people to expressing anger. They were, they, just within a few days, they received 40,000 calls and letter, including letters, including one letter that was addressed to the CEO, Robert Gazzetto, uh, Roberto Gazzetto, and here's what it said, to the chief dodo of the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> I think I said that right. Anyway, one guy wrote him for his autograph, and here's what he said, and I quote, I want the signature of one of the dumbest executives in American business history. The 1-800-HOTLINE, 1-800-GET-COKE, normally got about 400 calls a day. And I'm really trying to figure out why 400 people a day would call 1-800-GET-COKE. But uh, uh, it went up to 1,500 a day. It got so much that Coca-Cola hired a psychiatrist to listen in on the phone calls. He went back to the CEO and the executives and said, when I hear people talk about new Coke versus old Coke, they are speaking using the same language that a person uses when they have the death of a family member. So on July the 11th, 78 days after new Coke was introduced, Peter Jennings of NBC broke with breaking news and interrupted General Hospital during the day, <laughs> which in 1985 was a big deal. Peter Jennings, uh, July the 11th, 78 days later, interrupted General Hospital and said, Coca-Cola is now going back and re-offering the old Coke formula because they'd done away with the old Coke, re-offering uh, the old Coke formula and is going to be branded as New Coke and then Coca-Cola Classic. Many of you have wondered for years why did, uh, you're too young to remember, you're wondering why did Coke used to say Classic because until 2002, there was this terrible tasting thing called New Coke. David Pryor, who was a senator, said on the floor of the Senate after Peter Jennings interrupted General Hospital, said this, today is a meaningful moment in U.S. history. <laughs> World hunger, no. Coca-Cola has changed its formula. 
Now, the funniest thing of all this, the reason I'm telling you this story about New Coke is the, the people who got the biggest kick out of this was Pepsi. Pepsi had a field day. They started running commercials and saying, having people drink a Pepsi and they'd look at the can and they would say, now I know why Coke did it. Like Pepsi tastes so good that now we know why Coke did it. But Roger Enrico, who was the president of Pepsi's North America operations, declared a company-wide holiday on April 23rd. He took out a full page ad in the New York Times saying Pepsi had finally won the Cola Wars. And get this, all the employees in America of Pepsi were giving April 23rd off as a holiday because they'd won the Coca-Cola Wars because Pepsi was so good, it had forced Coca-Cola to change its formula. And so since 1971, Coca-Cola's tagline had been, Coca-Cola, the real thing. And here's what Roger Enrico, the CEO of Pepsi North America, said. By today's action... Coke has admitted that it's not the real thing. By their actions, they proved they weren't, as they claimed, the real thing. I wonder if Roger had read James chapter 1. Because that's how James chapter 1 concludes a story a chapter on real religion by calling out people who don't have the real thing. He concludes chapter one by calling out and telling us what the real thing ought to look like. Now, listen to me carefully. If you're here today, you, you got to understand, you need to know if you have the real thing. You need to know if you have Christ in your life. Number one, eternity depends upon it. Like you, you, you can't go through eternity hoping you're saved, wishing you're saved, guessing that you're saved. You can't do that. Your eternity depends on it. Can I tell you, eternity is far too long to get it wrong. And then if you're here today and you are a Christian, you have to get it right because we are, we're no effective for God. We're no effective for the kingdom when we're plagued with doubt, when we're plagued with indecision, when we never really know. In James chapter 1, he comes along and he talks about the real thing. Hey, this is no new Coke formula for Christianity. This is the real thing. And those, these are not all the markers of the real thing. These, this is not a comprehensive list. James leaves us in James chapter 1 and says, hey, here, here's, here's a litmus test. Here, here are three things that you know for sure if you're a believer. So let's stand together in honor of reading God's word and let's look at James chapter 1 and see how he concludes chapter 1. Look beginning in verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, let me get it. Here's what James is telling us. 
James is telling us that real religion has some markers, some pursuits that you can tell by gauging these things if you have the real thing or if you have some kind of a cheap counterfeit. So here's what I want us to do during the sermon. I want us to look at these three things, and, and James literally lists three different things. I want us to look at these, and I want us to measure our own life by what do we see in our lives when we see these three things? Because here's the first thing he tells us. Number one is this. That if the tongue ain't tame, then the religion ain't real. I don't know if I'm really a Christian or not. If your tongue is not tame, then your religion is not real. And that's pretty hard, but look at what he says in verse 26. He says, if any among you thinks he is religious... Now, the word in the Greek for religious there is the word threskos. It means someone who is dedicated to religion, someone who is pious, someone who gives great attention to religion, someone who feels like they are very close to God. Now, here's who God is addressing. He's addressing the people in this room who feel like you're checking all the boxes off, like I'm, I'm checking off the Christian boxes. I'm doing everything that a Christian ought to do. And James says, so there are people in the church, there are people in our midst that they can check off all the Christian boxes and you think you're religious. Now listen, that is not an, that I'm not an advocate for not checking the boxes off. But checking the boxes off doesn't mean you have the real thing. Well, how do I know? He said, well, if you think you're real religious, but you do not bridle your, say that word with me, tongue, tongue. Some people have called this the hypocrite's sin. You know what a bridle was used for? It was used to control a horse. He says, if you don't rein your tongue in, if you don't, if you don't bring your tongue to bear, if you're letting this uncontrolled tongue go on in your life, here's what he's trying to say. There is no form of following God that lets you say whatever you want to say. Well, we kind of live in a culture that we take pride in transparency and we're like, well, you know what? If I, if I think it, I just, I'm just ought to say it. Not true. Not true. I didn't, I didn't put, I could have put proverb after proverb and verse after verse on the screen. I didn't do it today because you go read them for yourself. But over and over again, the Bible says, watch what you say, watch your tongue. And here's what he says. If any of you thinks you're religious, you're checking off all the Christian boxes, but you are not controlling your own tongue, then what's the problem? Here it is. You're deceiving your own heart. Now notice this. You're not, and, and here's the implication, you're not deceiving anyone else. I mean, that's the truth about a runaway tongue. There are people who can check off all the boxes in the Christian life. They can do everything they're supposed to do, but their tongue is unbridled. Their tongue is not in check. Their tongue is a runaway tongue. And listen, you, you, in that situation, here's the truth, you'll, you'll fool yourself. But you're not fooling your wife. You're not fooling your husband. You're not fooling your kids. You're not fooling your parents. You're not fooling your friends. You're not fooling your church members. Listen, the, you are only fooling yourself. You may fool yourself about your godliness. You may deceive yourself about your godliness, but you're not deceiving any other church member. You're not deceiving any other family member. Why? The Bible is very clear. Jesus even said it, that what comes out of your mouth is just an overflow of what's in your heart. Here's what he says. 
If you're checking off all the Christian boxes and you think you're very religious, but you have a runaway tongue, you're deceiving yourself. And notice this, say this word with me. Your religion is, say it, useless. It means empty, vain, worthless. It's the same verse that Peter used in 1 Peter 1.18 where Peter talked about when you worship God, when you worship the pagans before you came to Christ, when you were pagan and worshiped other idols, that religion, that worship that you did was totally, same word, useless, Peter says. It's totally vain, totally worthless. And now Peter's, uh, now James has turned that word on us as Christians and James has told us that if you think you're a Christian and you're checking off all the boxes, you've not only deceived your heart, but your religion is absolutely worthless if you're not controlling your words. And James is saying of all the good you can do, of all the religious activity you can participate in, if you don't control your tongue, if you don't control your mouth, if you don't control your words, it's all fake, it's all empty, it's all vain. And that your speech is the real indicator of real religion in your life. And here's the truth. If your tongue is not tame, then your religion is not real. Because it's just an indicator. And that makes me stop and have to ask, what kind of tongue do I have? I don't know if you heard about the young guy. He went to work for a grocery store, one of the first jobs he'd ever had. And the manager put him in the produce department. And he'd been in there just a couple of hours. And he had a lady come up to him. And, and he looked, she looked at the young man. She said, young man, I'd like to buy half a head of lettuce. And he said, ma'am, we don't sell half heads of lettuce. It comes in the whole head all wrapped up. She said, I don't want the whole head. I only want a half a head. He's like, well, we don't sell that. He tried to talk her out of it. She just wouldn't relent. And so he said, let me just go back and ask the manager. So he thought, I'm just going back here waste some time. He, he went back to the manager. He didn't notice the lady was following him, though, into the back room. He went back to the manager, and he said, hey, hey, man, let me ask you a question. There's some stupid old windbag out here that wants to buy a half a head of lettuce. What do I tell her? And he saw the manager's eyes get big as saucers. And he figured out what he'd done. He turned looking. The lady was standing right beside him, and he looked at her, and he said, and this sweet lady wants to buy the other half. Is that Okay. Later on in the day, the manager ran across the young man. He said, man, you're quick on your feet. He said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Toronto, the home of beautiful hockey players and ugly women. And the manager said, hey, my wife is from Toronto. He said, oh, cool. What team did she play for? Can I tell you, you're not always going to be that quick on your feet. You're not always going to be able to cover for your tongue. You're not always going to be able to cover for your words. And I want to tell you that, that we are, your tongue is an indicator of your Christian life. If you're guilty of being easily provoked and angry and letting that anger spew, you've got to examine your life. If gossip and lies come out of your life, you've got to examine your life. If you're guilty of constantly being critical and judging and condemn others, if you let slang and profanity come out of your mouth, if you're at work and you're, in, you're, in, you're engaging in off-color talk and suggestive talk and you're running down others, listen to me, no matter what you think about your religion, no matter how many boxes you can check off, if you don't bridle your tongue, James says, your religion is... Useless, why? Because once you come to Christ, the real thing uses their words to bless other people. The real thing uses their words to encourage other people. 
The real thing guards their mouth. They guard their words. They don't let the offensive language leave their lips. And it doesn't matter how many religious activities you perform. If you don't tame your tongue, it's all in vain. So look, now is a great time for us all to stop and do a tongue evaluation. A word evaluation. A communication evaluation. What's going on right here? You say, well, preacher, I'm a, I'm a good Christian except for my words. Eh, James would disagree. James would say, as a matter of fact, an indicator of the real thing is that you have a bridle in your mouth and you're just clamming up when you shouldn't talk. And when you talk, you're trying to use your words for good. But if you let your tongue run away, if you let your tongue be unbridled, There's a good chance you don't have the real thing because James says, you may think you're religious. You may think you know God, but that tongue's an indicator. The second thing he tells us in this verse is this, that the real thing will help those who cannot help themselves. The real thing will help those who cannot help themselves. Look at verse, look at verse number 27. He said, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble. That's part A of verse 27. Pure and undefiled. The word pure there is the same word Jesus used in the New Testament. We talked about the pure in heart. It's the same words that's used of the, if you know about your Bible, in the Old Testament, in the temple, in the tabernacle. When they purified the, the, the temple pieces, that's the same word used right there. It meant pure and holy and, and godly. And then the word undefiled means sacred and something on high. And here's what James is trying to say. The very best religion, the real religion is really the word terminology he's using there. What does real religion look like? What does pure religion look like? Here it is. Visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Now, now, the word visit is such a fascinating word. It means to go after and seek after. It doesn't mean just to go sit. It means to seek after and, and meet a need in their life. It means to take care of them. That word visit is used about three times in the New Testament. Listen, for how God visited us through his son. Luke 168 is one of those verses where it says, God visited us in order to bring us salvation. So it's a strong word in the New Testament. It's a powerful word in the New Testament. It's not just meaning that you just go visit and have a friendly talk. It means you visit and meet a need that needs met. And so understand, now listen, James is talking about orphan and widows. Get me on that. He is talking about orphan and widows, but get this, he's not just talking about orphan and widows. What he does is he, he pulls the most needy group out of their society. So when the breadwinner died, keep in mind, women in that day did not necessarily have secular jobs. They may have home businesses. You read Proverbs 31, woman, and there may be some home endeavors. But as far as employment goes, it was the men who were employed. And if the breadwinner died, it was before life insurance. So there was no money to leave the family. It was before government programs. And so when a, when a husband died and the children were left orphaned or, or, or the wife was left widowed or maybe both those things happened, it, it, he's not just talking about just orphan and widows. He's saying that the most destitute in our society, real religion does this. Real religion shows up and helps people who cannot help themselves in their time of trouble, affliction, persecution, 
pressure, oppression. Here's what James is saying. Listen to this. You haven't really done a religious act until you've helped someone who cannot help themselves or you help someone who cannot help you back. This is a hard statement, but listen. The real thing helps those who cannot help themselves. And if you haven't really done that or don't have a heart for that, James says you aren't really religious, that you can claim all you want. But the heart of God is to help those who can't help themselves. And here's just the bottom line. There's no desire. There's no seeking out. There's no trying to help someone other than yourself. James says you don't have the real thing. Yesterday, uh, I don't know how to say this tactfully, uh, Georgia beat Florida. Sherry Odom. <laughs> and I wrote that in my notes on Wednesday, by the way, so I was very confident, hopefully, going into the game. Can I tell you this about college football? And I'm, I'm not going to talk about college football this morning. Can I tell you about college football? I, I, I know, I, know a, I have a lot of worthless information in my brain about sports. I don't mean to have it, it just kind of comes to me. Like, I, I just, in the internet days, if I see something and there's a stat for everything, I just have a lot of useless information. Did you know I know a whole lot about college football? Like, I can talk about A-gap assignment. I can talk about receiver route trees. I can explain to you the difference between a zone blocking scheme and a man-on-man blocking scheme. Like, I get all of that. I, I talked, Josh and I watched a football game yesterday, and I was upset on, on a play because they pulled the guard in the center from the, and, 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 and from the strong side. And they, I mean, like, I know all that stuff like I understand it but can I tell you something I have never played a down of college football in my life now I know some of you looking at me and thinking well that was a waste of fat right there I know I get it I get it I tried to play in middle school I tried to play football in middle school and I tried to be a cornerback and I was I was so skinny I was just I was beat to death and after two weeks my dad and the coaches were like eh Baseball, that's your sport. And so I went to baseball. And then when I became a senior in high school, I had discovered McDonald's. And the coach wanted me to play defensive end or lineman by the time I got in a senior in high school. I never played a snap of college football. But you know, I can talk about it. But yesterday, Georgia tried to score seven different times from the one-yard line. And seven different times we failed. And I can tell you what we did wrong, Sherry Odom. We won the game. I can tell you what we did wrong. <laughs> but I've never had my body piled up on the line of scrimmage. In other words, I can talk about it all I want. But I've never done it. And follow me. That's exactly what James is saying about real religion. You can talk religion all you want. You know all the answers to all the questions. You can pass the the Jesus Bible test. But unless you have a heart to help those who cannot help, you do not have the real thing. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you carried a meal to somebody who needed it? When's the last time you made a phone call to help somebody out? When's the last time you bought Christmas or served someone that could not help you back? Listen, we as a church, we have a heart's desire to do this as a church body. We have been working on plans for a such a long time to try to launch a ministry from our church or helping those in our communities who cannot help themselves. But can I say to you, you don't need to wait on us to do that. 
The need is too great. The hurt is too great. The pain is too great. There are plenty of people who cannot help themselves. You say, preacher, I don't know anybody. The word visit means you go look for them. You may never be more like Jesus than when you're helping those who cannot help themselves because here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 68, 5. A father of the fatherless and a defender of widows get this, is God. Like the heart of God is to help those who cannot help themselves. That's real religion. The number three, he tells us that you know you have real religion because affiliation can lead to contamination. Now what do you, what do you mean by that, preacher? Here, here's a mark of Real religion. We go back to verse 27. Now we're looking at the second part. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is real. The real thing is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Your translation may say unstained. It may say unpolluted. One commentator said it means this. Don't let the smut of the world get on you. Pure religion does not become overly entangled with the affairs and pleasures of this world. True believers, that is the real thing. Guard themselves against what, first, what John said in 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now look right this way. Everything you're going to be tempted with in life, every stain that can come to you in the Christian life is in one of those categories. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. It's what Jesus was tempted with in Matthew. It's what Eve was tempted with in Genesis when she ate of the fruit. The lust of the flesh. That's the internal cravings of our lives that, that we, need, we, we live in this flesh. We may be born again and saved, but we have a fleshly body that craves certain things. And there's a godly way to fulfill that craving. And there's an ungodly way to fulfill it. And the world will lead you into the ungodly way, the lust of the flesh. There's the lust of the eyes. That's what the world put in, puts in front of you. The enemy puts in front of you to entice you. That's why you have to be careful what you look at on your... Phone, that's why you have to be careful what you put in front of your eyes because that lust of the flesh will entice you in the wrong. Then there's the pride of life. Here's what he said to E. He said, he said, this fruit will taste good, it looks good, and it's going to make you wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The pride of life is as the world tempts us into thinking we'll be more popular, famous, have more power, have more money, have more stature in life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And here's what John said. He, he start, when he describes those three things, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Can I tell you what real religion knows? Real religion knows that we have to be in the world but not of the world. Real religion knows we have to live here, but we don't have to like it so much. We have to live here, but we don't have to get stained. We have to live here, but we don't have to become a fan of the world. Because we know affiliation can lead to contamination. Hey, about two weeks ago, I had, a, had an event in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and I just drove. It was faster driving it was to catch a plane from here to Atlanta back the Louisville, so I took Daniel with me. Daniel went with me, and we, we talked a lot of exciting stuff, church budget and bylaws, all the way there and all the way back. 
Daniel went to the conference with me. I led, and then on the way back, we, we came back through Knoxville. As we're going through Knoxville, Daniel said, uh, over there is a UT Stadium. We, we just drove right by it. Matter of fact, some of you may not have seen it, but this will be the only time I do this. There, there it is. Now, I, I, I'm throwing that. Listen, I, I'm throwing Tennessee fans a little love because I feel so sorry for y'all. And um, <laughs> Of course, it wasn't filled with people or anything. I mean, it is a stadium. And we drove by the stadium. We drove by the University of Tennessee. And can I tell you what I did when I drove by the stadium in the college? Can I tell you what I did? Well, let me tell you what I didn't do. I did not go in and buy a jersey while I went through I did not go into the gift shop and get a Peyton Manning autographed football. I did not stop and pull my car over on the side of the road and sing a stanza of what's that obnoxious song y'all have, uh, Rocky Top. You know what I did? I didn't go look for a hound dog named Old Smokey so I could pet him one time. We have a bulldog, not a hound dog. Can I tell you this, that I drove through Knoxville, Tennessee. I drove by the University of Tennessee. I drove by Neyland Stadium. Can I tell you this? I drove all the way through Knoxville and I came out on the other side. And get this, there was absolutely not one orange stain on me on the other side. I didn't become a fan. I just drove through. When I got to the other side of Knoxville, there was not one bit of evidence I had been through the heart of Tennessee country, other than they did throw a degree at me when I drove through. But other than that, that's mean. Y'all, y'all took that much better than the 830 service. They threw things in the 830 service. But I went through the heart of Tennessee University. And I came out on the other side without a stain. And can I tell you, that's what God wants from you out of this world. God wants you to drive through this world and along the way, he wants you to pull people to Jesus. God wants you to along the way, help those who are hurting. God wants you to along the way, let the spirit shine through you. But he wants you in the process of doing it to come out on the other side because you know if you're a Christian, this world is not our home. We're just passing through this world. God wants you to drive through this world and point people to Jesus but remain unstained and unspotted from this world. Close your Bibles and I'll preach for one more minute. I'm done. Some of us are here this morning and we've gotten too attached to the world. We do the same things the world does. We talk the same way the unbelievers do. We go to the same places unbelievers do. Our refrigerator has the same things in it the unbelievers uh, has. We, we, there's no measurable difference between us at work and unbelievers at work. And here's what real religion does. Real religion every day examines themselves and says, there are stains of the world that I need to get off. There are spots of the world. This world is hard to live in, but I'm not gonna let a stain stay. I wanna drive through and live here and point people to Jesus, but I wanna come out on the other side unspotted from the world. And real religion says, I have to live in it but I don't have to be of it. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. 
that we remain unspotted, unstained from the world. Could it be that you're here today and you've just become a little too much of a fan of the things of this world? You've just gotten too attached. Can, can, I, can I tell you this? The average Christian I know spends their time figuring up how close they can get to the line of sin without crossing. And can I tell you when you're standing on that line, you can't help but to get stained and spotted and dirty from the things of the world. You know what the heart of a real Christian is? The heart of a real Christian is how close can I get to Jesus? So that, what does the song say? The things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you're living your life seeing how close you can get to sin without going over, can I say to you, you may not have the real thing. It's not about how close I can get, it's about how close I can get to Jesus. Not, not the sin, to Jesus. Why are we trying to get close to sin and get close to Jesus? That's the real thing. Would you stand with me this morning? Do you have the real thing? Your words are an indicator. Your heart to help others is an indicator. Your being a fan of this world is an indicator. Can I tell you something you don't hear every day? We had a deacon saved in the early service. Because this is an indicator. Like you should stand up and pay attention. Examine your own heart and life. So would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, nobody looking around. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, you can know right now, before you leave this building, you can know it's as simple as ABC. Hey, you've got to admit you're a sinner and can't save yourself. We all have to get to that point. You can't check off enough religious boxes to have real religion. It doesn't work that way. There's no good you can do to earn heaven. You've got to admit, you can't save yourself. B, you've got to believe Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day. That's the gospel. And C, you've got to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here today and you don't think you have the real thing, I want you to pray with me just now. There's no magic formula, magic words. The words won't save you. But the intent of your heart is to ask God to forgive you of your sins and trust Christ and give you a home in heaven. Heads are bowed. You want to pray with me now and be saved? Pray with me just now. Something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I cannot save myself. And I know that Christ died on the cross so I could be saved. And so just now, I ask Christ to come into my life to forgive me of my sins to give me a home in heaven and I trust Jesus and Jesus alone so our heads are still bowed and if you just prayed that prayer with me and you trusted Christ then you are a born again believer and you need to do one of two things we hope that you've enjoyed the message this week helping you to apply God's word to your daily life for more information about Peavine be sure to check us out on Facebook 
Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.pvine.org. Thanks for listening.